The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome Elizabeth Yu. She is executive director and founder of Finance for Food, a nonprofit that educates food system entrepreneurs about the full range of financing options available to support them. She is also the author of a terrific guidebook called Raising Dough, The Complete Guide to Financing a Socially Responsible Food Business. And when I heard Elizabeth use TED Talk, this was back in 2011, she made a very good point, and that was that we can change the way we eat by changing how we use our forks as votes, but it's also really critical that we change the way we eat by changing the way we spend our money. And it's not something that I certainly think about much. So, Elizabeth, you, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm delighted. I told you before we got on the air that I'm a little insecure about this topic, as I think most people are, and that ideas come really easily to me. But funding those ideas is a totally different can of worms. And I also have found that in my circle of friends, and we serve on different boards, many of us do not like asking for money or financing even the things that we believe wholeheartedly to be true and worthy. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you got into this work and why you wrote the book. Sure. Well, there's so many different pieces in what you just said. I think to go back to the whole concept of how it's so challenging to talk about money and how it's challenging to ask for money, I think that is one of the major motivations for my writing this book, is I think that the world of finance is so obscured by this language that is intimidating. And most of the people that work in the traditional finance world, whether it's people in banks or investors, they have this language. They use it all the time. It's really heavy lingo. It's hard to understand if you're not in that world already. And to me, that increases the growing gap between those who have money and those who have access to money and financing and those who don't. And so for me, this book was part of the way that I could help people understand that these terms are are maybe not the terms themselves, but the concepts behind raising money and financing are not that complicated. But you need to know what the specific words mean before you can start to have a conversation with somebody else or before you can feel comfortable with even opening the conversation with a prospective lender or investor. And so to me, yes, this concept of language is very much a social justice issue, and I want to help people increase their confidence with the language of finance so that they will feel more comfortable raising money. Mm-hmm. And asking for money. Why is it so difficult to ask for money? Is it that we don't know who to ask for money from? Or is it just something about human nature that we we want to be independent, we don't want to ask for help? It's probably a combination of both. I think in terms of this, quote, lack of access to capital, there, there's many studies that have come out recently, primarily within the local farming movement that say that lack of access to capital is one of the biggest barriers for beginning and and, uh, disadvantaged farmers. And 
I think that's probably true, and at the same time, there's more money than ever before available for people who are raising financing for food companies, whether it's at the farm, at the aggregator level, at the food processing, small manufacturing level, or retail. There's so many people that want to move their money off of Wall Street and invest in the types of businesses that are creating the types of communities that they want to be a part of, and so many food businesses are doing this, and so more and more people want to invest their money. So on the part of the entrepreneurs who are raising money for their food businesses, particularly for businesses that are somehow solving social or environmental problems, there is, in fact, more money available in many different ways than there has ever been before, but you're right. Part of the challenge is that people don't know where to look for it, and some of the most appropriate avenues for fundraising are not the most obvious ones to find. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, from my own experience in working on being a grant reviewer for the USDA's Community Food Security Grants, I can tell you that it is a grueling experience because there are so many valid efforts out there to try to change the food system or change the way we eat, change our communities through food, and there is not enough money through that one particular avenue. So there may be many, many more valid grant proposals than USDA has the ability to fund, which is why I think your book, Raising Dough, The Complete Guide to Financing a Socially Responsible Food Business, is so timely because I want to be able to contact everyone that didn't get USDA funding and say, wait, wait, there are, there are more options available to you. I'm so glad that you said that. I think that was, again, one of the major motivations for me for writing this book is that a lot of people, especially if they're farmers or they're doing community food security projects, the USDA is the first source of financing that they think of, whether it's through rural development or the community food security grant program you mentioned or through the Farm Service Agency. And frankly, the USDA and their grant and loan programs, it's a very, very complicated system to navigate if you're not very experienced with it already. It's hard to find which programs you're even eligible for. It's hard to understand the application process. The grants.gov website is infamous for crashing on the day that the grants are due, and there's no recourse if you miss it because of that technical glitch. And then even if you are magically accepted for one of the grants or loans, the reporting requirements are, are very onerous, and some people even are accepted for a grant or a loan program and don't take the money because they realize it's just going to take so much time and energy to report against that money over time. So mm-hmm. I'm a really big fan of other community-supported financing mechanisms that instead of spending a whole bunch of time finding, filling out an application and sort of beating your head against the large bureaucratic system that the USDA can sometimes feel like as somebody trying to raise money, Instead, an entrepreneur can spend their time trying to activate, motivate, and raise money from their community members, and those are the people that will be their future customers. And then they're also, it's in addition to being a financing effort, it's also a marketing effort. So these are the people that will then be their future ambassadors. They'll, as investors, they'll have an incentive to come and support their businesses, whereas if you're working with the USDA, it's often maybe one field officer and an online form that you're interacting with, you're not activating your your future customer base. Mm -hmm. And from a social justice standpoint, since you raised that point, I don't know what the grade level is in the language in these grant proposals, but if you're not extremely literate, you may be extremely capable and deserving of money to promote your community program, 
but the language is so cumbersome. So I like this idea of looking at other community-supported financing options. And I'm sure our listeners are to the point now where they're at the edge of their seat and they're wondering, what do you mean by community-supported financing options? Well, the one that people are probably the most familiar with is a Community-Supported Agriculture Program, or CSA. And mm-hmm. when these first started, they were really a risk-sharing endeavor. A community of people would come together, or there was a farmer that already existed in the community, and, and this group of people knew that the vocation of farming and the ability of this community to produce its own food and to increase its soil fertility would come together and Look at a farmer's cost of living over the course of the year, and this is everything from how much it would cost to run the farm to how much it would cost to run the household and send the kids to school, health insurance, that sort of thing. And then the community members that were a part of this program would pledge to cover their share of this farm household and farm business's costs over the course of the year. And then in exchange, they would get that share, same share, their portion of the produce that came from that farm over the course of that year. And so if something happened, if there was a flood or a drought or um, some sort of pest on the farm, they might not get the most exciting farm box over the course of that year. Now, when most people think of a a community-supported agriculture or CSA program, what they're thinking of is a, a subscription box service. But the benefit of this to the farmer or to the producer, and it's not just farms now. We're also seeing restaurants that are doing this. There's a growing number of community-supported fisheries as well. The community support part comes because the people who are on the receiving end of the produce or the fish or the baked goods or whatever it is that the retailer is selling, they pay in advance for a certain amount of product ahead of time. So it's a way that the business, whether it be a farm or a group of fisher people or a retail location, can raise money in advance in exchange for product that they'll deliver over time. So if you are a farmer at the beginning of the season, you have to buy your irrigation system, your starts or your seeds, equipment at the beginning of the season before you have any goods to sell. Having this CSA program where people are paying in advance can give you the money that you need to then get to the point where you do actually have product to deliver. And it's a really great way for them to manage their cash flow. And as an engaged citizen that wants to be part of, of promoting a food system where we do have, whether it's farmers or retailers, again, that that are creating the type of community that we want to be a part of, we can support them by paying in advance for something that we know we're going to buy eventually. Do you find that individuals who try to start a CSA kind of program have difficulty knowing how much to charge for a share? Well, it really varies depending on the program. So, Sometimes people are doing this when they've had a business and it's running for years and they know exactly what to charge. For companies that are starting out, starting a CSA program can be very challenging anyway if you don't already have a very active network of people that you can tap to support this type of program. So, I mean, choosing pricing is always a challenge. And to some degree, if you're doing a subscription box service or if you're pre-selling retail goods, the market will already have been set in terms of what the retail price is that people are willing to pay or willing to accept. If you're starting from scratch, you may have a hard time attracting people to participate in the program at the same retail cost because they just don't know what they're getting into, whereas if you're a business that's been going for a while, you might be more easily able to entice your existing customers to come in by offering them a discount. So, I mean, there's there's many factors that come into play. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to look at another example of a community-supported financing operation. And I don't know if um, this would fall under that right heading, but I really like the story of Brahma Mahdi, 
So he is the CEO of the People's Community Market in Oakland, California. West Oakland is known for being, I hesitate to use this word because we have a mutual friend who really hates it, but for lack of a better term to use, a food desert where there are lots of people living. They don't have access to good food. They have access to, say, little corner stores. And yet there is a potential of people collectively spending close to $60 million a year on groceries, and yet there's no full-service grocery store in West Oakland. So Brom starts up this people's community market. He's having trouble raising money. What saved him? I love this story because Brahm Amadi is actually one of the people that I always think of when I remember why I'm so interested in doing this work. I watched him for almost 10 years struggle to raise money from the usual suspects. He tried to raise money from, from banks and other type of venture finance investors, and then that didn't work. And then he was approaching foundations and other impact investors, which is to say institutional investors or individual investors who had stated a commitment to investing in the types of businesses that are solving social and environmental problems. But he still found that because his business was brand new and it was starting from scratch, that he didn't have the type of business that met the risk requirements. These investors were more conservative and they wanted to see something that wasn't as risky. And so eventually what he realized was that part of the social aspect of this business would be to offer the residents of the West Oakland community ownership in this business. And he thought, well, because we're really existing to serve the needs of this community, why don't we offer investment shares to them? And through a mechanism known as a direct public offering, he is enabling people in West Oakland or anywhere in California to invest in the people's community market for as little as $1,000. And through this direct public offering, People can invest, again, as little as $1,000, which is a very small amount for most small independently held businesses. And it's a loan with a very conservative interest rate, but as part of this, you can also elect to receive some of your return in the form of product once the community market is opened. And is that working for him? They've been doing quite well. They've recently had their first close. I think they've raised close to $750,000, and they're still raising money. So if you are a resident of California, I hope that you will check out their direct public offering. Mm -hmm. All right. I need to take one break and just let our listeners know that we are speaking with Elizabeth Yu. She is the Executive Director of Finance for Food, which is a nonprofit that educates food system entrepreneurs regarding the full range of financing options available to support their business, their passion, and she is the author of Raising Dough, The Complete Guide to Financing a Socially Responsible Food Business. And if you're somebody like me who might have ideas but not know how to fund them exactly, this is the guidebook you have been looking for. Okay, there are so many terms in finance, and you have an MBA, I don't. I don't understand what they mean. I don't know how to work with these folks. But what are angel investors? Ah, well, many people think that an angel investor is someone who comes down from the heavens with exactly the money you need at the exact time and then will, you know, go away and leave you to do what you want to do. But in reality, an angel investing is a term that does mean a little bit more in the traditional investing world. And for the most part, it means that these are investors, often entrepreneurs who have been successful in the field that that you are raising money in. So in the case of a food business, it would be someone who has perhaps run a successful food business in the past 
And they usually come at a very early stage of your business. So maybe you're just starting up if you've only been going for a short period of time. And they will want to have a fairly large portion of ownership in your business. So they might purchase stock for entrepreneurs raising money. This is also known as equity financing. You sell a portion of your business to an investor. You're selling stock to these investors in order to raise money. So angel investors will usually want a fairly significant portion of your stock in exchange for the money that they will invest. And then they'll probably also want to be fairly involved in helping manage your company, which sounds great, and it often can be. Uh, Angel investors often come with a, a very robust network and lots of business skills that can be quite helpful as you're growing your business. But if you are someone that likes to be in control, it can also feel very meddlesome. So mm-hmm. you want to be careful. Um, like when you're finding any type of investor, you want to be very, very sure that the investors that you're working with share your values. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think you bring up a good point, and that is you've got folks who are investing in your idea and your business and how much meddling or how much intrusion and changing of your original ideas do you want to allow? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really slippery slope, or it can be. And I think one of the things that I often will advise people is that it's better to not raise any outside money at all than it is to raise money with terms that will force you to dilute your values and your mission and your priorities over time. So I think the number one step before anyone even attempts to try to raise money from anyone other than themselves is to really spend the time to articulate your values and really map out your priorities and ask yourself the question, would I be willing to compromise these to raise the money that I need to do what I need to do? One of my mentors, Jay Cohen Gilbert of B-Labs, he always says, no margin, no mission. So the margin is the money that you make selling a product beyond the cost to make that product. And the point that he's trying to make is that it doesn't matter how socially responsible your business is. If the numbers don't pencil out, if you're not financially sustainable, you're not going to be able to achieve your social mission. So it is, again, a fine line. If you need to raise money to achieve the impact that you founded the business to achieve, then yes, you you may find yourself in a place where you might need to compromise your values. But Part of why I wrote this book, again, is that there are so many different ways to raise money, and each of them is better suited for certain types of businesses or businesses with certain values than others. And the only way that you can identify the appropriate types of financing or the the right types of investors for what it is that you're trying to do is if you have both fully identified and articulated your own goals and priorities and if you know the full range of financing opportunities available, and only then can you make an appropriate match. Mm -hmm. And another take-home point that I got from the book was that there's no single form of financing that is going to satisfy our business goals and our capital needs from the launch until, say, you know, months or years into the venture. So this is my perspective. I would want, ideally, to find one form of financing to stick with through the get-go or the long term, but that's not the way it works, is it? No, it's really not. And I think that for the most part, when businesses are first starting up, it's the founders themselves that will end up financing those early startup costs. So a lot of people take out second mortgages on their home or they tap into their savings. I know some people that have used their student loans to start their businesses. And then the next source of financing usually comes from friends and family. 
And this could be in the form of a loan, or maybe they would buy stock in the business as well, but that comes with a whole different set of considerations, which I describe more in the book. And then beyond that, again, we're looking at your potential customers. So these are people that might be buying your products or purchasing your services at some point in the future. That might be a good source of financing. But one of the biggest confusions, I think, is that people believe that they can just go to a bank when they're starting a business, when in reality, a bank is really only interested when you have already gotten to the point where you are a profitable business and you've been going for maybe three years, you have three years of revenue history, they want to see that you either own your the building that the business is operating out of or at least you own your home and you're willing to put that up as collateral, which is some sort of security against the loan. The banks want to be able to sell something if for some reason you're not able to pay the loan back. So these are some of the, the things that the book attempts to demystify is this mysterious world of finance. It's not just banks. In fact, for early stage businesses, a bank isn't appropriate. But what are some of the more appropriate types of financing and how can you access them? So, for instance, microfinance, which refers to loans of up to $50,000 usually, and the organizations that are providing microloans, known as micro lenders, they often provide a whole range of services in addition to the loans themselves, which include things like financial literacy training and, and business planning support. So I highly recommend that earlier stage businesses look for a micro lender in their area, and this will be appropriate long before a bank will ever pay them any attention. I'm so glad you mentioned financial literacy. I think it is so critical. And as I was going through your book and, and listening to you speak, I'm thinking to myself, you know, the time to really learn all of these terms and learn how to navigate these snarly relationships with lenders and so forth is really in high school. And I wondered, are you working on any curriculum for high school students? I'm not working on a curriculum specifically for high school students, but I will say that, like you said, it is so important for people to learn these terms as early as possible. And along the same lines, it's very, very important to start thinking about how you might be raising money for your business long before you need that money. And so much of this in this day and age is about building relationships. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, I'm not sure what to recommend for high school students in particular, but for anyone who's starting a business or thinking of starting a business or has been running a business and is thinking about raising capital at some point in the future, the time to learn about all the different types of capital raising tools that's now, because you can never understand these concepts too early, and the, the better you understand them, the better you will be prepared to successfully access that financing at the time when it, you actually need to raise it. Mm-hmm. And speaking of relationships, I thought the story that you included, and I should just let our listeners know that you acknowledged the people who shared with you their stories of both success and failure because, as you state in the book, you know, we really don't have time to waste. We really need to get on this. And by sharing our stories, mistakes, and successes, can we really move forward in the most expedient fashion? But you tell the story of the George Bowers grocery store. And I was so interested in this because it's the case where you start out, you think you have a good relationship with someone as you're going into this, in this particular case, starting a grocery store, and everything seems great, and then all of a sudden you realize, oops, we don't have the same values. Yes, this is a great example of a cautionary tale that people can learn from. In this case, the partner investors in George Bauer's Grocery, everyone thought that they were on board with local purchasing. 
So they knew that they wanted to support local growers and local food producers, and yet, you know, one day one of the other partners came in with a bunch of cheese from Costco. And, you know, they were saying, well, I don't understand. I thought we agreed that we would shop local. And then, oh, well, it's from the local Costco. And so, you know, here's a case where clearly the values had not been articulated ahead of time. And then this was just sort of one step in a challenging relationship that went from bad to worse. And again, anytime you are partnering with anyone to run a business, whether it's actually operating the business or partnering with someone who will come in as an investor, it's so important to clarify ahead of time what you mean by your values and, and what does sustainability mean to you? What does social responsibility mean to you? Because everyone defines this differently. And if you only discover your differences when it comes time to make a decision in the boardroom and the person that owns a big chunk of your company because that's they invested by purchasing stock in the company, that's too late and they might have more of a vote than you do and can outvote some practice that to you was crucial in the sustainability of your business. We just have a few minutes left. I have certainly pages of questions regarding this terrific book and your work, but I want to give you a chance to share anything about the book that you want to make sure our listeners know. I think the most important thing, and we've we've covered it in various ways, is that I want people to know that there is a huge range of options for raising money. And unfortunately, there still aren't enough that will perfectly meet everybody's needs. But if you know what all of your options are, then you can better assess which is the most appropriate for what it is that you're trying to do and the values and the goals that you are trying to achieve. And even if there is an option that isn't quite perfect, this book will help you understand some of the potential pitfalls and help you build terms into your agreements with potential investors that may be better able to help you protect your values over time. So that's the most important thing that I wanted to make sure that people knew and to really encourage people to to do whatever they can to help educate themselves about the different financing options rather than just let whatever option they find first start to guide their decision-making and fundraising process. I'm going to slip in one really fast question. In your acknowledgments, which I love to read, you thank your parents for being the first to show you food's role in cultivating all that is valuable in life. How did they do that? Well, I like to joke that I come from a long line of eaters, and it's true. I didn't realize until recently that family dinners are not a universal concept. So for us, we always, the four of us, my parents and my brother and I, always sat down for family dinner. And that was when we would talk about our day. We would you know, vent our gripes or we would make plans for the future and really just commune as a family in this convivial place around the dinner table and enjoy really fantastic food that both of my parents cook and my My mother says that that's why they're still together and their marriage has thrived over the years is because they always cook together. And then, of course, as I got older, I started to understand that food is connected to so many of the important social issues of our time, whether it be our ecological system, uh, public health, animal welfare, social justice, economic development, climate change, obesity. I mean, you name it, any issue that is facing humanity or our planet today, you can trace back to food. But because I grew up where food was such an important part of, of celebrating life, I think I've always maintained my commitment to helping solve the world's problems through the lens of food. And I'm so glad that there are people like you, Melinda, and our fellow friends and colleagues who are working in the, the food space, because not only is it important and a really wonderful leverage point for affecting social change, 
it's also a place where we can gather and have fun and really celebrate the taste and the flavors and the shared meals. Well, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. Elizabeth Yu is the executive director and founder of Finance for Food, a nonprofit that educates food system entrepreneurs in the U.S. about the full range of financing options available to support them. She is the author of a terrific book, Raising Dough, The Complete Guide to Financing a Socially Responsible Food Business. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you.